<clears throat> Sorry, I'm gonna have to <coughs> clear my throat. Oh my god. <coughs> Are you ready? Let's do it. Welcome back to Not Another Science Podcast. I'm Helena. And I'm Tom. Oh boy, this episode, it is a good one. Tom and I didn't know each other very well before we started making the podcast, but we bonded over a love of sourdough bread, and it turns out giving them names from Greek mythology. So when we first brainstormed topics for the show, sourdough was high on the list, and we are so excited to finally bring you this episode. Our guest today is none other than the sourdough librarian himself, the lovely Carl DeSmet. Carl works for Puretos, a manufacturer and supplier of baking ingredients, and runs their sourdough library, in which they maintain and study the most interesting sourdough starters from around the world. Starters that have been passed down through generations and come with some frankly wild histories. Carl also started the Quest for Sourdough, where bakers from around the world can register their starters. The story behind that project is incredible, and Carl himself has a wealth of funny anecdotes, so let's get straight to it. Before we start, this podcast is sponsored by GrinoBio One, supplying laboratory, diagnostic, and medical products to research institutions, higher education, the NHS, and others across the UK. For details of the full product range, visit www.gbo.com. And now, on with the show! So, I'm Carl de Smet. I'm from Belgium. I live in Brussels. And I am the curator of the Sourdough Library. And the company that is actually owning the library is Puratos. I work for the company since 1994. I'm a baker, confectioner, chocolatier. I had actually a flower allergy since 2002. And I had to stop active baking or being a technical advisor for our customers. And as such, little by little, I enrolled in, in a role to become more a theoretical trainer on what bakery ingredients were. And as such, since 2008, I'm in charge of a building that we call the Center for Bread Flavor, where we receive customers from all around the world. And where in 2013, we opened the one and only Sourdough Library. On social media, I'm promoting myself as the sourdough librarian in order to share fun stuff about the library or expertise or just participate in podcasts like these. And uh, if you could talk us through what the sourdough library actually is. Well, people can go and visit it online. Eh? There is a website called thequestforsourdough.com. You have a link to the virtual library, so you can really walk around in the library. But the physical library is looking a little bit different than the one that is online. But it's a room with a lot of wood. There's wood on the floor, the walls are in wood. And then there is these fridges filled with jars, all airtight closed. And you see all these different colors when you come in the library. You see the jars and, and some some are liquid, some are stiff, some are yellowish, some are creamy, some are white, other dark brown. So there is this palette of colors that you can discover. And the ceiling is actually a picture that was taken by someone who was lying on his back in the woods that give the room a nice atmosphere. That's a bit how visually people could imagine the Sourdough Library. I will say that the online version, I spent 
more time that I should have in there but it is it is amazing there is so much information and like I love the stories about the different sourdoughs it's just it's an incredible resource could you tell us a little bit about the quest for sourdough where you ask people to to register their sourdoughs yes I'm, I'm very proud of that initiative because we had of course the the sourdough library opened in 2013 and we had 43 starters that we collected in Italy in the US in Greece, in Hungary. And we have, of course, a network of bakeries all around the world from whom we can get samples to get into the library, of course. But what we wanted to do is to have a better view on who else has sourdough and what is this sourdough world or community representing. And the best way to do it was to create this website where you ask people to register their starter and as such, they can share what they do, how they do it, where their sourdough comes from, if they got it from a friend, if it's one with a history that goes back to their grandmother or maybe even further in history. So we collect a lot of information about these sourdoughs. And as such, we have a better pool of sourdoughs to select from to enter sourdoughs in the library. We have now 130 sourdoughs from 25 countries. I think on the quest for sourdough, we have more than 2,200, 2,300 from over 90 countries. So through the, the quest for sourdough project, I have discovered much more sourdoughs that were normally not in our network. We get a lot of questions. We know what concerns or what, what they want to know. And as such, we try to create content through videos or blog posts in order to give that back to that community, to feed that community again so that they would raise new questions so that we can keep this ball rolling of receiving and giving information. Yeah, I wanted, I wanted to ask about all these crazy sourdough adventures that you've been on. They are amazing. They are so much fun to watch. So good. <laughs> Did you ever imagine that like your love for bread would just take you all over the world? No, not, not one single moment. It was by accident, actually. The first starter we collected was, I was not even working in the company, it was back in 1989. And when I started, 1994, it was the first sourdough I saw in my life. In school, I never learned what sourdough was or how to make it. For me, in 1994, I made my first sourdough bread. And I think my second sourdough bread, I only made in 2005 or 2006. Little by little, you saw, you saw this growing and we had this collection of 30, 43 sourdoughs and then and then we took the initiative to make a library and then and then the, the, we saw the interest of, and the response we had on the library from customers who were amazed and said like this is an amazing initiative this is like the the holy grail and the, the most unique place in in the bakery world and then for fun i made one movie for the inauguration where i went to altamura and 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 then we showed it to to customers that we invited and everybody said yeah 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 you have to make more so as such we decided to make more but it was i would never have expected that and it's 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 so much well it's probably the the funniest thing to do now making a movie is you only see the nice part you don't see that we have to wake up at one o'clock at night or stay in a bakery at three o'clock in the morning to 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 record this huh? but it's it's really fun to do yeah so it's, it's fun to do, to go on the road. And then, of course, I have sometimes support of, of our local team 
poor translation sometimes. I was in Turkey. I do not speak Turkish. I'm I'm just a boy from Brussels. And in Brussels, you grow up in the streets. My both parents are Flemish-speaking. But in the streets, it's 85% in those days was French-speaking. Now it's even more. So my mother tongue is Dutch. I speak French. I do speak English. Uh, I do speak German because the, the Sauerde library is located in the German-speaking part of Belgium. And, and then in the meantime, I learned Spanish, Italian, and I do a little bit of Portuguese, Portignol, I call it. It's what in Brazil I mingle, I mix Spanish and Portuguese, actually. Which is helpful but because when I go somewhere, I can go to many countries and understand what people say. And that, that's important, not having the filter of a translator. Sometimes, like when I was in Alaska, when I followed the Klondike Gold Trail, I was just my cameraman, myself, and one girl that offered to be our guide on, on the road and also who had a sourdough, it was Ariana. That was an amazing, amazing thing to do, be on the road, follow that trail, actually, where you realize that these gold seekers, these stampeders, they had to do that without electricity. They had to walk or they had to a, a raft or a boat. It puts things in perspective on how people had to maintain their starter or where it originates from. Like in Turkey, the, the lady collects the dew on the wheat stalks in the morning. The first day of spring, they collect this dew and that's used in order to mix with flour and as such create their starter. You have the baker in Mexico who made a starter from beer, lime and eggs. The one in Japan is just made from rice. So it's discovering these starters and then what they do with it is is sometimes even more spectacular. The breads that I've eaten on the Quest for Sourdough is yeah, that's just an amazing. Eh? They enter in, in my top five of best breads ever. And it's preserving, it's it's sharing this tradition and this heritage. So it's a good thing to do, we believe. That's why we continue investing in that. Yeah, I think I hadn't quite realized how passionate people were about their sourdoughs. I mean, we've named our sourdoughs and we joked about it, but seeing videos and seeing how much people cared about this thing that had been passed down for generations. I mean, it's the fact that it's a whole culture, a way of doing things and how different bread can be from different places. I mean, it's just, yeah, a whole new world. <laughs> <laughs> Sourdough librarian is such a unique job. What does it involve day to day? Well, the, the sourdough librarian is, is uh, my nickname, but officially I am a communication and training manager for everything related to sourdough and specialty grains that we are producing. I do a lot of communication. I help putting these stories to bring them to life. There are some studies ongoing with sourdoughs from the library, scientific studies with Professor Marco Gobetti. I'm involved in a lot of projects uh, that, that keep me busy. I have to maintain the starters in the library. Every two months, we feed all the starters with the original flour and following the recipe from the bakers or from the people who own the sourdough, because we do not own them. They are in the library, but they are. it's not our property. The library is a non-for-profit initiative that we do in order to, to share and to to preserve that heritage of sourdough. So they have to send us flour, the flour that they use in their environment uh, once a year or once every two years. We refresh only six times per year, three times in a row with six hours in between. And then the jars are closed and not touched for two months. And two months is the protocol that we got from Professor Marco Gobetti to make sure that the yeasts and the lactic acid bacteria are not 
dying, that they have still enough food to survive these two months. That's how we do it in the library. We do not use these samples to bake everyday bread with it. Eh? We use them in order to study them. Yeah. Has it been quite different for you during lockdown? Like, the, has that changed the way that you function or the, or the, the library? Yes, uh, yeah, yeah, of course. Uh, because uh, where the library is located, it, it's actually a place where there is everyday visitors. Bakeries from all over the world come and see us there in order to come and learn and co-create together with us new breads or, or sourdoughs or whatever. So I haven't had any visitors for, well, almost one year now. And as long as the world cannot go back to this, well, normal or new normal, as they say, things for, for me will remain the same. We still try to do stuff and to participate in, in, in studies and we have a lot of contact and we do a lot of research, which hopefully we will be able to share once the situation gets better. Okay, it brought some new opportunities. It created this amazing buzz around sourdough. And last year in April, I got on an article in the New York Times. Our CEO had put that as a challenge. He always said, have you had your article already in the New York Times? We were making a joke out of it, but it actually, it happened. And then there is, of course, all these requests that come over social media, via Instagram or via Facebook or through email, where people reach out. So my, my days are rather busy. Certainly now in the lockdown, uh, many people find their way to sourdough and, and the popularity of sourdough has never been as high as, as it is now, which is wonderful, by the way. Yeah, well, um, that's, that's something that me and Helena got into as a result of the lockdown. I think sourdough seems to be something that recently has gained a lot of popularity, even, you know, pre-coronavirus. I, I definitely hadn't heard of it when I was younger, but... I'd wonder if you could tell us a little bit about the history of sourdough, how it kind of originated and then how we lost our way a little bit and then came back to it. Mm. Well, the first records that we have from sourdough date back to Egypt, but it could be that, that, that it was already present before the Egyptians. We don't know actually the origin, but we assume that it's coming from the Egyptians. I recently got informed that in Australia, they have found back traces of breads that look like the breads you find today from 80,000 years old. The story might be much older than we think. We know that the Egyptians discovered the art of sourdough making. If you go back like 5,000 years and translate that in uh, generations, Generate because knowledge of sourdough making was not written in cookbooks in those days. It was transmitted from master to pupil, from father to son, from mother to daughter. So that's more than 250 generations that this thing is ongoing. If I look in the library, well, the oldest sourdough that I'm, I'm sure of is six generations. There might be some that are older, but we can't carbon date a sourdough. You just have to rely on what people tell you, but it would be amazing if we could try to go back into these generations, but it's a, it's a complicated thing. And so for thousands of years, bakers and, and everybody on earth actually who wanted to make bread had to rely on sourdough until Louis Pasteur, the French scientist, writes his memoir on alcoholic fermentation and paves the way, actually, for the production of the commercial baker's yeast. At the end of the 19th century, you see this uprise of commercial yeast 
and bakers switch massively to the use of commercial yeast and sourdough gets a bit forgotten. So for more than 150 years, not that many bakers were maintaining starters, unless it was countries where you have this typical rye bread tradition, Russia, Germany, Poland, Slovenia, Scandinavia, where you need the rye to be acidified in order to be able to make a decent loaf. And so we started investigating sourdoughs back in 1985. And so we've pushed a lot towards customers. We started presenting sourdough again to reintroduce it in the beginning as a very simple ingredient to add a specific flavor in a bread. But we see now over the last five years, we started to see that sourdough is not only flavor, but it has this healthy halo. It, it makes the bread more digestible. And so we know now that sourdough is it's clear. It gives taste. It gives texture to the bread. But what is upcoming from these studies that are ongoing now is this aspect of the digestibility of sourdough, the impact on the gut health it has. So sourdough is now back on the map within the baker's community, and I think it's back for good. We start to understand what's going on in this fermentation. We know the influence of the lactic acid bacteria and how they thrive together with the yeasts and what they do in the bread. And having this together with the technology of having refrigerators and things where you can maintain sourdough at a certain temperature, that facilitates the work of the baker, of course. And so it, due to its complexity, it was forgotten because it was so much easier to make a bread with yeast. But today, by understanding this complexity, we can reintroduce it as a healthy ingredient in bread baking. You talked a little about a bit about the difference between commercial yeast and sourdough, but I wonder for someone if someone who's listening doesn't know what sourdough is, could you give us a quick crash course on how do you go about making a starter and like what what the differences are? So it's very simple. You take equal parts of water and flour. And it's important that in the beginning you start with a little bit because you have to feed it the same quantity every day. So if you start with, with five hundred grams the first day well, you will end up with a, a huge amount of, of dough by the time your sourdough is ready. So you start with a small amount, let's say two spoons of flour and equal parts of water. What I try to do is uh, to, to get a consistency of applesauce. So depending on the type of flour that you use, some flours absorb more or less water. So you try to get this applesauce consistency so that you can nice, uh, easy, easy mixing it and that you have this good viscosity so that the gas bubbles that are produced stay trapped inside and you see your sourdough rise. And so you keep it at, at let's say, room temperature between 20 and 35 degrees. That is the ideal temperature for, for a sourdough to, to mature. And every 24 hours, you feed it with the same amount of flour and, and uh, water. And you will see that after three, four days, your your sourdough might get stinky and funky and it has a flavor that you're scared of and that, that many people think that oh i did it wrong and and then they they throw it away they get discouraged or they start again to face the same problem so when it starts to stink you have to continue feeding it you don't have to run away but just Eat it. It's, it's the yeasts that are dying and they leave a bad aroma, but you just have to keep on feeding. And what I also recommend is after a couple of days, when you see that the quantity of sourdough you have gets too big, just 
use half of it, add an egg or two, a bit of sugar, a bit of milk powder, and make some pancakes with it. So not to throw it away. And then you will see if you do that for six, seven, eight, ten days, sometimes you get something that starts, it's bubbly. It has this yogurty flavor and it's alive. And from that moment on, you have what you call a mother dough that you can use in order to make breads. But in the beginning, I would recommend people to make waffles, to make pancakes, crackers, stuff that you cannot fail. And then once you see that your starter has a good activity, then you can try your first breads. The flour is actually full of sugars because the starch contains a lot of sugars. And these sugars are transferred into CO2 and into organic acids. That is mainly what is happening. So the yeasts, they, they convert into CO2 and they make the dough rise. And the lactic acid bacteria, they transform the starch into lactic acid, organic acid. And at the same time, they reduce the gluten network that is obtained into amino acids. And these are very important building blocks for our body, of course. That's why sourdough bread is so nutritious. Mm. I was interested in how the microbial community that's in the starter changes over time or changes with the type of flour or all these crazy ingredients, you know, or different consistencies. What, what's actually going on there when you're, when you're changing these variables? Well, the yeasts produce CO2 and alcohol. The alcohol, that is something that the lactic acid bacteria, they do not like. So there is this battle inside between the yeasts and the lactic acid bacteria. And the lactic acid bacteria, in order to get rid of the yeasts, they produce organic acids. And as such, they create an environment where only good microbes survive. Because when you mix flour and water, the pH is around 6.2. And then through the acidification of the starter, you should go below 4.2 pH. And that is the moment that all the pathogens are killed. And then you create an environment where the good ones survive and they start building their city. And it makes it difficult for intruders because every time you feed a starter with new flour, you bring in intruders again because this flour is full of microorganisms. And so the environment that the, the lactic acid bacteria and the yeasts create in the sourdough is actually their little fortress. It's the, the city with the walls to make sure they survive. But then if you do not pay attention to your starter, the lactic acid bacteria that can thrive best in very acid environments, they will start killing even more yeast and your starter will get less active. And you will obtain a sourdough that is very monoculture. The strongest will survive and you will end up with one or two species where in other sourdoughs you can have three, five, six, or maybe even more uh, lactic acid bacteria that, that, that represent the consortium of uh, what is living in there. Do we know what determines which bacteria, which yeasts end up in sourdough? Does it have something to do with the flour that we use? There's one of the sourdoughs in the library that has like five different kinds of bacteria and three different kinds of yeast. And is there any way for us to make sure that that can happen? Or do we not just not know? Well, it's, it's difficult to know why it happens. Well, one of the reasons is that this, this sourdough that you mentioned is probably the one from uh, Will 
in uh, Bainbridge Island from a pizzeria. So he is refreshing his starter very often. He has a nice turnover and maybe the temperature there is, is very moderate throughout the year. And as such, he creates an environment where the acidification is not that high. So you, you create a place where many lactic acid bacteria and yeast can thrive together. Where in other sourdoughs, they go more for a tangy flavor, like a, a San Francisco starter. It's almost, you, you feel your cheeks like, yeah, because they, are, they want a very acid sourdough. So that is one of the reasons. Now the flour can have impact on that as well. The temperatures will have an influence if you ferment a sourdough at 20 degree you get more acidic acid that is produced if you ferment at 35 degrees you have more lactic acid that is produced the consistency of your starter if you have a liquid starter you produce more organic acids than in a stiff starter and that's why panettone sourdoughs are often very stiff because you look for the fermentation power and in a stiff sourdough you have often a better fermentation power so there's many factors that influence a sourdough it's very difficult to have a sourdough that is the same on the 1st of january throughout the 31st of december that's almost impossible unless you make it in a controlled environment that's what we do for our customers but my starter here is behaving differently and here when i say here i'm at home now and when i bake in the summer, it's it's behaving different than in wintertime, of course, because my house is just warmer in the summer. And it's not by changing a flower. So if you have a starter and you feed it with a different flower, it's not going to change overnight. It takes time. We've done uh, two years ago in summer, we, we did an experiment where we invited 15 bakers from eight countries and we've sent them a bag of flour, all the same flour, and they had to feed their own starter with our flour and they had to take samples before and after the first feed and then after each feed. We've analyzed these starters on day one, day four, day eight, then day 10, and they, they didn't change. In a living sourdough, where you have this ecosystem that is there to protect its environment, it's not that easy to change overnight. It's like a city. The city is not changing overnight all its habitants. You have the families are there for hundreds of years and they will remain for the, for the coming century probably, or even more. Once we go back to normal, what is your dream for the, for the library, for the science? What, like, is there a question that you really want answered? Yes, 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 yes. We were supposed to, we try every summer, we try to do an experiment. And so last year we couldn't do it. We had planned to invite bakers who have given their sourdough to bring them together and have their sourdough that they have today in their bakery analyzed with what we have in the library and what we had so many years ago from them to see how the cultures might have changed or evolved. So that is definitely something that is uh, on the program. I would like to do a, a how you call that? A reunion or uh, bring people back together to sit around the fire, to make the dough, to give a hug to people, to get physical, get physical with people instead of just just digital watch a screen like we are doing right now. That is the thing that I, I look forward to. Cooking and baking is such a, it's such an occasion to like gather people in a space and just hang out and 
just I don't know connect. If you have something to drink and you have something to eat, you create the best atmosphere for people to share, to tell stories. That, that's where you get information out of people. If you just sit around the table and there is nothing on the table, the, the conversation will end fast. But if you have something to eat and something to drink, you create that atmosphere where exchange of ideas, exchange of knowledge is happening. And these are the magical moments. We have to endure, I think, and continue make sourdough bread. Thank you so much to Carl for taking the time to answer our many, many, many questions. You can find him on Instagram at the underscore sourdough underscore librarian, which is definitely worth a follow if you're a baker because he regularly posts baking tips and footage of the sourdough library. And he's also on Twitter at Carl the Smet, which is all one word. We'll post links to both the Quest for Sourdough and the Sourdough Library in the show notes, where if you have time, you can take a virtual visit of the library. And definitely, definitely check out the Quest for Sourdough videos to find out how sourdough is used around the world. Yeah, big recommend. This podcast is brought to you by the Edinburgh University Science Magazine. In each episode, we explore fascinating themes and ideas, talk to awesome researchers about their work, and find out about the science being done by our very own staff and students here at the university. If you have any feedback for us, or if you'd like to get in touch with a question or a suggestion, you can reach us on our Facebook page, Edinburgh University Science Media, or at our Twitter, at USCI. That's at E-U-S-C-I. You can also drop us an email at usci.podcast at gmail.com, and you can find the show notes and the latest issue of the magazine at usci.org.uk. If you'd like to be featured on the podcast, please get in touch and keep an eye on our social media for more information. This episode was hosted by me, Tom Edwick, and my partner in crime, Helena Cornu. The podcast manager is Alex Bailey. The podcast logo was designed by USI chief editor, Apple Chu. And the awesome podcast episode art was designed by Heather Jones, our social media and marketing genius. The intro and outro themes are edited from music by Kevin McLeod. Thank you for listening, and until next time... Keep it science! Actually, I have the question to end all questions, which is, how do I become a sourdough librarian? When we decided to make the library, it was, it, it was by accident that we had these 43 starters and then a, a baker in Lebanon called us to, to share his recipe with us. And that kind of inspired us to start with this library. And then I had to go find the funding. One day I had the chairman of the board and I looked at him and I said, bon, when are you going to give me my library? He looked at me and I said, what are you talking about? So I show him the place where I wanted the library. I start telling him the idea. He decided back in 1985 that we should reintroduce sourdough in the bakery business. He's a believer of sourdough. And he looks at me and says, why haven't you done it? So I look at him and I, and I said, well, I don't have the time, but I was doing this symbol that I didn't have money. So he looks at me and he said, well, how much time do you need? And I showed him the file and he said, well, yeah, do it. That was the 19th of October. I will never forget the 19th of October, 2012 and the 15th of October, 2013, we inaugurated. When I did this launch of the Quest for Sourdough website, we were sitting with my group of ambassadors in the library. And one of them, Guy Frankel, he looks at me and he said, but Carl, you are the sourdough librarian.